Um, in your Bibles, if you want to find Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 will be concluding um, Acts chapter 2, really rounding out the introduction to the book of Acts. We've been in a series the last few weeks called Unstoppable, and it's a series through, verse by verse, through the book of Acts. I love to go all the way through books of the Bible and really dig into what God has for us in his word. So we'll be concluding this introduction to Acts. The first two chapters are really the introduction, and, and we'll be concluding Acts chapter 2. While you're finding that in your Bibles or on your device or maybe out of your amazing memory, if you're Gary Cook, um, <laughs> Acts chapter 2, while you're finding that, let me just tell you a, a quick story about... Uh, my early years in college, and here's a picture of me college age. Oh, yeah. The question I have is, how did that nerd get the girl? <laughs> yeah. So when I was in college, uh, the, my, my very first time in college was at Hannibal LaGrange University, uh, which is a Southern Baptist college, tiny little school in uh, uh, Hannibal, Missouri, uh, near where I grew up. And so when I was going from a high school senior to a college student, you know, your first time at school, you never really know what to expect, right? You, you don't really know where, think, where's the cafeteria? Where's my dorm? Where are, where's the basketball court? Where's the weight room? Where's all this stuff? Where do we hang out? Where's the coffee shop? That's the all important question. Um, and so you got to figure out what, how do I be a college student? You know, I've been used to being a high school student. Now I'm a college student. What does that look like? Uh, how do I, what do, where, where are my classes? Where do I buy my books? There's all these unknowns that within just a few weeks of being on campus, you figure all that stuff out, right? But you have that time uh, initially where you, you're something new and you don't really know how to be that new thing. So I had the, uh, this story about when I went to college, um, not really knowing where anything was, I went to the freshman orientation day and it was in the gym uh, at the, on campus and uh, I went in there and there were all these bleachers and seats set up and everything. It was, it was this assembly and I was a few minutes early and so um, I looked around and I found a section that had a few people sitting in it that looked friendly enough so I didn't know anybody and I went and I sat down next to them and I turned to the girl sitting next to me and I said, hi, my name's Andy, what's yours? And she didn't even look at me. Absolutely no acknowledgement of my existence whatsoever. So I thought, okay, well, maybe she's shy. Uh, and a few minutes later, a guy came and sat down next to me. So I turned to him and I said, hi, my name's Andy. What's yours? He, he didn't even acknowledge me. Like nothing, no response. And I'm thinking, okay, I didn't grow up Baptist. This is a Baptist school. Our, I thought Baptists were friendly. <laughs> but, you know, it's, so I just thought, oh, Whatever. Well, a few minutes later, the assembly started and the president of the college got up and started speaking and somebody that was sitting a couple of rows in front of me stood up and turned around and began signing to our section. <laughs> I, had, <laughs> I had missed the little sign at the front that said, deaf students, sit here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, first days. Way to make a first impression uh, at college, right? I think about a time when you have had a first day or a first experience, right? That first time when you were at school, when you went from middle school to high school or from high school to college or from school to your first time on the job, your first job, your first few days at the job, when you're training and you're learning and you're figuring things out. What about your first days as a newlywed if you're married? or your first days as a new parent, if you have kids, 
all these times when, when we, we really pass over a mile marker in our life and we're in a new season, we have a new, sort of a new identity, and, and you have to figure out, what do I do now? Now that I am this, what do I do? How do I, how does that function? How does my life work now? Think about your first days as a Christian. Okay, you've been saved, great. Now what? How do I live as a follower of Christ? What do I do? What does life look like as a Christian, as a believer? Is your life as a Christian really any different than your life before you were a Christian? Is there anything different at all? Has, has your faith in Christ changed you or impacted you? Has it changed the way you think? Has it changed the way you look at the world? Has it changed your behavior or your actions or your decisions? You say, you say okay, I, I have a new identity in Christ. I've been saved. I have put my faith in him. I've been born again into his family. Welcome to the new normal. What is the new normal? What, what, does, what does a normal Christian life look like anyway? And, and what does the Bible have to teach us with regard to that? That's exactly what the Christians, the very first Christians in Acts chapter 2 had to figure out. We've been looking at Acts chapter 2 really chronicles, this tells a story of one day, the day the church was born, the day Christianity be- came into an ex- existence. Um, the Holy Spirit was poured out, uh, 120 of Jesus' disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in the Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues, uh, fire and, and, and wind, and it was this m- amazing miracle. And all the people that were gathered in Jerusalem for the holiday heard and saw what was going on, and they gathered around. They were from countries all around the world. They heard uh, God being praised in their own languages because the disciples were miraculously enabled to speak languages they hadn't learned through a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And then they said, what's going on? What does this mean? So the apostle Peter stood up and he preached the very first Christian sermon in history. We looked at that last week. And the response to his message was that 3,000 people put their faith in Christ and became Christians. The very first uh, church, the very first worship service, the very first sermon, 3,000 people were saved. Now what? Well, how do these 3,000 people go about living as Christians? And that's what Luke tells us at the end of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And as we look at these verses, we'll really see this. What does a normal Christian life look like anyway? What is, what is typical everyday life like for someone who follows Jesus? How is it different? What is it, what is it based on? What's it supposed to be like as a Christian? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Let's just read these short uh, few verses and then we'll kind of dig into them and and see what the Bible uh, has for us today. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a snapshot 
of a normal Christian life, typical everyday life for someone who follows Jesus. That's what this describes, and I just want to pull out two points. You're welcome. Two points. <laughs> the first one is this. A normal Christian life is committed to God's word. Typical, everyday life for someone who follows Jesus is devoted to scripture. That's what verse 42 says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? It was their messages. It was their sermons. It was their, their Bible studies. It was their teaching about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's some of it is recorded for us, preserved for us over 2,000 years of history in the Bible. Most of the New Testament are letters written by the apostles teaching churches, teaching Christians. That's what most of the New Testament is. So we have uh, not, not most of their teaching. We have a small drop of their teaching uh, preserved for us in the New Testament. But uh, the, the early Christians were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to God's word. That's what it means for us today, is to be devoted to God's word. And I, I just wanna make a, a couple of uh, observations about the apostles' teaching. This is what they were devoted to. This is what they were committed to. First of all, the apostles' teaching was powerful. It was powerful. It wasn't just some dry, old, dusty uh, theological survey. It was filled with power. Verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They were teaching and preaching God's word and their teaching and preaching was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Wonders and signs. Now, wonders and signs is sort of a code word, uh, a code phrase in the New Testament for the miraculous works of God. It's different than like magic tricks. It's different than other things. Wonders and signs were, were specifically, if you look all through the Gospels, it talks about the wonders and signs that Jesus did because the wonders and signs pointed people back to God. The, the signs always point back to God. Any wonder or any sign or any miracle that doesn't point back to God isn't from God. So when he says they, they were doing wonders and signs, it's really the Holy Spirit that was doing it through them as a validation that the message, the gospel they were proclaiming really was from God. And this is normal. It's normal for the life of the church to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of our values that we, that we say here at Lakeview is we long to see the power of God displayed in our midst through miracles, healing, life transformation, wisdom, and prophecy, just like it was in Acts chapter 2. Wonders and signs filling the power, filling the church with the power of the Holy Spirit and pointing people back to God. Their teaching was powerful. Another observation, their teaching was very practical. It was very practical, right? Peter preached the very first message, the gospel. We looked at that last week. God promised to forgive our sins and give us his Holy Spirit. God kept his promise through Jesus' death and resurrection. And now the promise is for you through forgiveness or repentance and faith in Jesus. That's the heart of the, of the, the, the Christian message. That is the gospel. And you say, how is that practical? 
How would we do that every day? How do we teach through that every day? Well, the, the teaching of the apostles was that gospel applied to all of life. It wasn't just some theoretical idea. It wasn't just some paper that they wrote about in a world religions class. This, this was practical, immensely practical. It impacted every single area and aspect of their life. Here are just a few ways the gospel impacts us. It changes literally everything, but here are just a few. First of all, if we understand that I didn't earn it. I didn't earn the right to be saved because I am a good person, right? God didn't keep his promise of salvation in the Holy Spirit through my performance, He kept it through Jesus' death and resurrection. So once we understand that I didn't earn it, I don't don't deserve it, I didn't earn it, well, then pride, arrogance, and boasting, those are all out the window in my life. I have no room to be prideful. I have no room to be arrogant. I can't boast about anything. I am only here by the grace and mercy of God, right? The gospel impacts us through uh, getting rid of our pride and our arrogance and our boasting because We didn't earn our relationship with God. It was won for us by Christ on the cross. Also, uh, I don't have to be insecure about who I am. Why not? Because of the gospel, I am loved and accepted in Christ. I don't have to be the right sort of person in order for God to love me. I don't have to make myself beautiful in order for God to desire me. I am lovely because he loves me. I am accepted because he has accepted me. So I don't have to worry about what other people think of me. I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm popular or on the in crowd or or what people are gonna think about what I do. I'm loved and accepted in Christ. I have a security in my relationship with him that really takes away any insecurities that I might struggle with. I don't have to to be this insecure person always uh, wondering about, uh, am I on the inside circle? Am I doing things right? Do, Do I dress the right way so that people think I'm cool? Do I do the right things? Do I hang out with the right folks? No, I'm loved and accepted in Christ. The gospel applies to every part of our life. Uh, The gospel brings purpose and meaning. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? Well, because we were accepted and loved and saved through Christ, we know that we were saved so that we can be a reflection of God to the world around us. So we can bear God's image. That's why we were made, to bring glory to Christ, to serve the common good, to to share the gospel and the good news with other people. I'm free to be who God created me to be and to pursue the purpose that God has given me, the plan that he has for my life. You're free to pursue the plan that he has for you in the gospel through the sacrifice of Christ. Their teaching was powerful. Their teaching was practical. The gospel applies to every single part of your life. It's not just some random theoretical idea. Their their teaching was also put into action. Right? It was put into action. If you look at verse 42, here's what it literally says, literally translated. Now, the NIV sort of simplifies it a little bit because this is kind of a clunky way of stating it. But this is the literal translation of Acts 2.42. It says, they were existing in a state of continuously, intensely committing themselves to the teaching of the apostles. 
The NIV says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's much more succinct. But really what, it, what he's talking about is they were, con- they were existing in a state of continuously, intensely committing themselves to the, the teaching of the apostles. In other words, uh, th- they weren't just devoting themselves to the act of the apostles' teaching. They were committing themselves to the content of the apostles' teaching. It's not just that they were uh, faithful to come to church on Sunday morning and listen to the sermon. They were, they were committing their existence to actually doing what God's word calls us to do, to actually putting it into practice. It, that's what they were committed to. That's what they were devoted to, not just listening to the apostles preach, but doing what the apostles taught. And that is the very first thing that Luke describes about these brand new Christians, that they were committed to God's word, not just to knowing it, but to doing it. And, and why is that? Why is that the very first thing he tells us? A normal Christian life, the first thing he says is, a normal Christian life is committed to God's word. Why is that the very first thing? Because it reveals a very important principle in our lives. What you believe determines how you live. What you believe determines how you live. So believe what is true. That's a principle that we need to to internalize. There are so many different sources of truth in our world today. How do you know what's true? Fake news, Facebook, Google, Wikipedia, all these different sources of information. How do you know what's true? What you believe determines how you live. In our society, we have, we have elevated emotions and feelings so high so that, so that if I feel something, well, if I feel that way, it must be true. Not necessarily. Your feelings aren't always true. What is true? God's word is true. As Christians, what it means to be a Christian, part of the normal Christian life is basing your truth, your understanding of reality on God's word because what God's word says is true. Truth is not just this, this uh, uh, you know, truth is, <laughs> truth is an objective reality. Whether you believe it or not, whether, whatever you feel about it or don't feel about it, whatever you think about it or don't think about it, it doesn't change that there is an objective reality that is true or not true. And what, what God calls us to do as Christians is to build our understanding of truth on the reality that is revealed in his word. That's what it means to be committed to God's word. Not just knowing it, not just understanding it, but putting it into practice, putting it into action, obedient to God's word. That is part of a normal Christian life. As a church, our desire is to be filled with and led by the Holy Spirit, to be like this church in Acts 2, unapologetically devoted to God's word. Not just knowing, but obeying, doing it, doing what it says, because what you believe determines how you live, so believe what is true. That's the first point. A normal Christian life is devoted, committed to God's word. The second point is this. A normal Christian life is committed to God's church. 
Typical, everyday life for someone who follows Jesus means being devoted to the fellowship. It's, it's devoted to God's word and it's devoted to God's church. Look back at verse 42 in the literal translation again. Here's what it says, verse 42. They were existing in a state of continuously, intensely committing themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the fellowship. The word the is in the original language. That's what Luke originally wrote, to the apostles and to the fellowship. Now, to smooth it out in English, most English Bibles take out the word the before fellowship, but I think that's a mistake. I don't think we should do that. Why? When you think of fellowship, what do you think of? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of fellowship? Eating. Potlucks. <laughs> right? Now, I could tell you this. I do not need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be devoted to potlucks. I love food. I love potlucks. Right? But, but what Luke is describing in these verses is not potlucks. He's not saying, this is a normal Christian life devoted to God's word and to potlucks. That's not what he's talking about. It's so much deeper than that. We miss that because we take out the word the and we put in, we just have devoted to fellowship. What is fellowship? Well, that's potlucks. That's a game night. That's hanging out. That's being friends. That's being social. All those things are great. We love that. And churches do potlucks better than anybody. Why? Because we think it's commanded in Scripture. <laughs> but really, what he's talking about is the fellowship. Now, fellowship is different than the fellowship. And, and the best way that I thought to explain the difference is to give you an illustration. Here's a picture. Name me the movie. The Lord of the Rings, but what particular movie? The Lord of the Rings is a trilogy, it's okay. The Fellowship of the Ring. The Fellowship of the Ring. That movie is not about the potlucks that they all had together, right? The Fellowship was this group, this group, hobbits, a dwarf, men, a wizard, an elf, randomly scattered different kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all, what, you know, different races, whatever, that all came together as a group united by a common purpose and mission to destroy the evil ring of power. They were the fellowship of the ring. The fellowship is the group of people who are united by some common cause or purpose or mission. That's what the fellowship of the ring was. The fellowship of the believers are that group of people who are united around the common love of Christ that we share and the common mission and purpose to be representatives of Christ to the world around us, to serve the glory of Christ and the common good, to be uh, missionaries and ministers and ambassadors for Christ in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, everywhere that we go. We are the fellowship of the believers believers, those who follow Jesus, those who share the love of Christ. That's what they were devoted to. They weren't devoted to potlucks, although potlucks are great. They were devoted to the fellowship, the church, the family of God. They were devoted. They were committed 
to the fellowship. And just make some observations about their fellowship. Luke really describes that in, uh, in pretty good detail here in the next several verses. Uh, first of all, he tells us that they were together. Their fellowship, they were together. Look at verse 44. All the believers were together. It, it literally says all the believers were existing in a state of togetherness. They were together. They belonged together. They were a new family, a new social group, a new community, a new society, a new humanity made in the image of Christ. Together is not something they did. It's something they were. They existed in a state of togetherness. They were together. The second observation is they were radically generous. Keep reading, verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. That doesn't mean, hey, I like to fly fish for trout, you like to fly fish for trout. I like jazz, you like jazz. We have so much in common. That's not what he's talking about. When he says they had everything in common, he's talking about, uh, I don't consider my possessions to be my own possessions for my own purpose and my own benefit, but I am making what I have available to meet the needs of our fellowship, of our community. And that's what he talks about in verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This was not just dropping a $5 bill in the offering basket when it came by. This was radical generosity. They sold property, real estate, property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. If someone in their church had need, you know, hey, that family over there is in need. He lost his job. They don't have anything. I'm going to sell off old Betsy the cow and give it to them. I'm gonna sell off the back 40 and so I can bless their family. In our day, we might say, I'm gonna donate my car. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell something off, gonna, whatever. It's, it, this is radical generosity. This isn't just dropping a $5 in the offering basket when it comes by. They, they were radically generous. That's their fellowship. Um, they were both large and small. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together. They had a large group gathering and a small group gathering, kind of like what we do. We get together on Sunday mornings in a large group. We hear the teaching of God's word. We worship together, and then we scatter out to meet in Bible studies and homes and life groups and all around, just like they did. Why do churches do that? Because it's modeled for us right here in Scripture. Right, so they were together, they were radically generous, they were both large and small. Another observation is this, they were filled with sincere joy. Keep going in verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They weren't just going through the motions. Right, they, they weren't just, I'm going to church because that's what I'm supposed to do because I'm trying to be a good person so God will like me someday. Oh, I'm joining a life group because that's what we're supposed to do because I want to be a good person so God will like me someday. No, they were already loved. They were already accepted in Christ. They were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit and they met together because they wanted to, because they enjoyed each other. They enjoyed the fellowship they had with the Lord. Their hearts were glad and sincere. They were sincerely joyful. Uh, another observation, they were united by worship. Verse 47, they ate together glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God. 
Right, this, this points back to, to the verse 42, the second half, where it says that they were devoted to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were devoted to worship, to communion, to singing together, to praying together, to praising the Lord. That's what united them. You know, the reality is this. We form community around the things that we love. When you hear a new song that you really like, what do you do? You drag your friends over and you say, listen to this song, it's so good, right? Because we form community around the things we love. When you find others who love the same things you do, community is a natural part of what happens. Well, we are connected by a shared love for Christ, by a shared love of Christ. God loves us, God's accepted us, all of us. We're very different. Unity is not uniformity. We're very different people. We have very different backgrounds. We have very different interests and tastes. But one thing we have in common, Jesus Christ died for us, saved us, filled us with his Holy Spirit. That unites us in a desire to bring glory to God, to praise him. They were united by worship. Another observation, they were growing. That's what verse 47 continues on. Praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were growing. Just a couple of observations about their growth. If you, if you go to Google and you, church, and you search uh, church growth strategies, you'll only find about 800 million responses. But it's not all that complicated according to the Bible. First of all, look, put verse 47 up uh, again, Glenn, if you could. Look at verse 47. Who is the one who saves? According to verse 47. The Lord. God is the one who saves, not us. People don't get saved because we have great music. People don't get saved because we have great preaching when the other guys preach. People don't get saved because we have great potlucks, although we have great potlucks. God is the one who saves. The Lord is the one who adds, not us. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have great programming. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have great music. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have great preaching or great potlucks. We should. But we need to remember that God is the one who brings the growth. God is the one who saves, not us. Another thing is that God doesn't add nominal Christians. It doesn't say the Lord added to their number daily those who weren't really serious about their faith but just were trying to be good people so that God would like them someday. That's not what he says. He says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. God doesn't add nominal Christians. When he adds people to the church, they are the people who are being saved. Another thing about church growth is this. God doesn't save people without adding them to the church. It doesn't say the Lord saved them and then told them you don't need to go to church in order to be a Christian. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. People today oftentimes think, I don't have to go to church to worship God. I don't have to be part of church to worship God. I can be a Christian and I can do my own God thing on my own. That's not really a pattern that we see in Scripture. God doesn't add people to the church without saving them, and God doesn't save people without adding them to the church. They go hand in hand. They go together. That's the truth about church growth. The Lord is the one who saves he doesn't add nominal Christians, and he doesn't save people without adding them to the church. And I think all these observations highlight another important principle about fellowship. Fellowship is a sign 
of life. People say, uh, how do I know I'm truly a Christian? Do you have a desire to belong to the fellowship? Do you have a desire to belong to God's family? Do you have a desire to be a part of the fellowship of the believer? If you don't, that might be a sign that you might not have true spiritual life because fellowship is a sign of life. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, put it this way. He says, you don't tell a baby, cry. Come on, baby, cry. You don't have to do that. If the baby is alive, it cries. I've had four of them, I know, right? You don't have to tell people who have new life in Christ to come together. They don't come together as a response to a command. They don't come together as a response to duty, although it is a command and it is a duty. They don't come together as a response to tradition or family or civic virtue or anything like that. They come together as a response to life. It's the same reason a child cries. It is a sign of life. The fellowship is a sign of life. That's why at Lakeview, one of our values is this. We don't just attend, we belong. Lakeview is our spiritual home and we are members of the family. We're not just attenders. We're not just bouncing in and bouncing out. This is our home. This is our spiritual home. We're members of the family. The fellowship is a sign of life. If you have no interest in belonging to a local church and building true relationships and being part of God's family, that might be a sign that you don't actually have spiritual life because this is a sign. This is normal for the believer. A normal Christian life is committed to God's word and to God's church. I want to finish up by saying, what is missing from that list? Rules, right? So many Christian churches today teach, uh, okay, you got saved, now here is a whole list of rules. Aren't you so excited to be a Christian? You can't do this anymore, 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 you can't do this anymore. Oh, all those friends, get rid of them. You have to start doing these things and these things. And you have to wake up at 4 a.m. every day and spend the first two hours in prayer. Great, you gotta learn Greek and Hebrew so you can read the Bible, fantastic. How, who wants to get saved? That's not a normal Christian life. Luke doesn't mention anything at all about following a list of rules because following a list of rules is not a normal Christian life. A normal Christian life, as we've seen from Acts chapter two in its entirety over the last few weeks, there really are three ingredients to a, a normal Christian life. The spirit, the word, and the church. That's what Acts chapter two is all about. That's what a normal Christian life is all about. The Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the church of God, the people of God. If you have those three ingredients in your life, you will grow as a believer. You will grow as a disciple. You will be living a normal Christian life over time. It takes time. But this is what a normal Christian life is all about, the Spirit, the Word, and the church. The question is, how normal is your life?